Hey, everybody. We have a, uh, a sponsor to talk to you guys about quick. We've had them on the show a few times. We've seen them at the Grid Life Paddocks for the past couple years. Uh, really good people and uh, really, really cool products and cars and services. So Fields Auto Works, uh, fun cars to drive and own, serious track performance, uh, a lot less hassle, cost, consumables. Um, they have uh, they make their own cars, and very cool stuff. If you haven't heard, listen back to the one with Rob Fields. We talk about a lot of the details of the Cardinal. Uh, extremely unique, affordable for the performance that you get. Like a, I don't know, it's probably like a fifth of the cost of a GT3 and runs about as fast as one. Uh, easy performance upgrades like wheels, tires, boost, tune, aero stuff, even engine swaps, I'm sure. Uh, three performance level offerings, the S300, the Cardinal, and the Scioto. Uh, which is gorgeous, by the way. That car is amazing looking. Um, opportunities for build spots uh, are limited, and uh, they are building cars right now. They've taken orders. Uh, we have seen one of the uh, earlier production ones at a bunch of Grid Life events. Really, really cool. The Cardinals got great vintage vibes, uh, modern Mustang underpinning, and uh, like probably half or less of the weight of, uh, of a modern Mustang. So your bearings, your hubs, your everything lasts a long time. Uh, and Fields Engineering, uh, full motorsports services are available. Shop services for large projects. Arrive and drive stuff uh, services for your own car or one of theirs. Uh, engineering, design, and small-scale fab work and production. Composites fab work. Um, and it puts the combined expertise of aerospace engineers, IndyCar builders, IMSA crew chiefs, and uh, more on their staff, on their crew, uh, at your fingertips, which is uh, hard to find and really, really great prep shop work. Uh, super cool people to have trackside, uh, and they let me steal their tools when I need them, which is great for me. So, so uh, uh, if you uh, if you want to check out FieldsAutoWorks.com, uh, really, really cool people. Welcome, everybody, to the Slip Angle Podcast. This is episode number eight, I think, of the weekend. So I'm, uh, I'm going to let my guest do a lot of talking. My guest has been on the show before. Uh, he is an artist and a driver and a builder and a creator. It's Mike DeSold of DeSold Designs in Dallas, Texas. Hello. Well, it's Louisville, but Louisville is very like, close uh, to Dallas. It's suburban-ish. It's, yeah, it's in the Metroplex. So. Okay. Um, and I think many people know you for the uh, uh, previously Optima um, Ultimate Streetcar Challenge winner, Camaro, that is uh, kind of this evergreen thing. You're always tweaking it for something new. And in the last few years, since I most recently talked to you, uh, it had focused more on time attack and a little bit less on um, like being a th kind of that perfect, well-rounded car. And so you'd added some aero um, and done some events, but also had the intent to do uh, Pikes Peak. And you had done that, I think, in the last couple of years twice. What was that experience like? It's a complete other planet. The Pikes Peak race is like nothing we ever did. We went in there thinking we knew how that stuff worked, and we couldn't have been more wrong. And it just beat us to a pulp. 
and we finally think we've kind of paid our dues, figured things out, and we think we're on the right track now. Uh, it's a really crazy balance of engineering around issues with altitude. Sure. And until you go to altitude, you think you have an understanding of what it means. But when you're there, it's totally different than the way you think it works. And we've kind of drawn a lot of inspiration from how aircraft work, because obviously they deal with altitude. And then talking with other racers that have done the race for years has been super helpful. But turbo systems are absolutely wonky when you get up there with really low ambient pressures. And fortunately, we've kind of teamed up with the guys at Garrett, and they've been helping us out a lot and really expanding our knowledge. And we've had more and more really cool members of our team come on. Uh, we've got a couple members that are current LMP2 crew chiefs, which is really nice. Yeah, for sure. It's... Uh, it's been cool because we've been able to apply a lot of up-to-the-minute race technology into kind of our grassroots program. Sure, yeah. Uh, some of that's also trickled down into our friends' cars, like a la Ferris's car sure. and stuff. Um, you know, we've got hooked up with the aero guys at Virus, Yep. And they've done a lot of work with us on trying to make the downforce better because... Believe it or not, downforce doesn't work the same at altitude either because the air's thinner. So yeah, the air's thinner. Nothing works good on the mountain when it really, really counts. You know, you, you don't want to go off there, and it's really tricky to know, is that corner going to have a different bump in it today than it had yesterday? Because that happens on the mountain regularly. The bumps are different every day. Interesting. One, one corner that you think is going to be good it could have rained at that particular altitude last night, washed gravel across it, and, and now so the it's grip dirty. Will be different. And you could be halfway through a corner, find gravel, and be in a world of trouble if you're already, you know, a touch over the limit. So it's just such a crazy race. It's so much different. Well, it's like I appreciate that the the team can put a bunch of really smart people on trying to solve this problem, but in part, you're trying to engineer and predict uncertainty, which is hard. Yeah, it's right? like how, how do you manage that? Because you know the situation is variable. I, it really is one of those things that when you're building a car for, for Pikes Peak, you know that that car is not going to get driven the way it would, say, here today at a time attack event where the track is not a variable. The track, once you do your outlap, the track is the track. You know where everything is. There's no trash on it. You know where the bumps are. You're good. Then you can just send it. At the mountain, you don't really know that. So you can't be 10.2 tenths and run into a weird wonky bump or, holy cow, there's a rock in the middle of the track. Yeah, or, that wasn't there before. Or, wait, there's a mountain goat. Where did that come from? <laughs> or th th stuff like that happens. So you have to have a little bit of reservation, which is, for me, almost impossible. Like, when I'm in a car, it's like I'm going 10 tenths. Yeah. Well, you, you are yourself a really accomplished driver, but uh, the, f the, the first two years, at least, you've had help from, from a driver uh, who has experience at, at Pikes Peak. Tell me about that process from moving out of the driver's seat and moving more into a different role. It was kind of a little bit hard at first, but I've really enjoyed you know, the crew chief part of it and building the team. Um, so I've just kind of made my focus on that trying to get the best team possible to make this event as successful as it can be. And that's kind of taken away a little bit of the sting of not being the one in the driver's seat because 
Everybody that does driving kind of has a little bit of an ego thing. They really want to no be way. the one in the car. No they way. Wanna, yeah, I know. It's, it's probably the first time you've ever heard this. Nobody realizes it, but it, it is a thing. But it's been helpful because the guy who's driving the car, Tommy Boylo, is a friend. He's a phenomenal driver. And all you have to do is ride up the mountain in a car with him. And you know he is absolutely the guy for the job. He is so in tune with every bump on that road that stays a bump every day. Sure. And he knows where there's a curb, where there's not a curb, where it's on camber, where it's off camber. And he could tell you the previous two turns and the next two turns at 156 turns. And he knows them all. Yeah. And he, he could tell you what gear the car's in in every section. And he'll, you'll watch him. He'll just sit in the car sometimes just making runs in his mind doing the whole thing. And he knows every square inch of it. And he's devoted the time to knowing the mountain well enough to, to be able to be successful at it, where I know that I don't have that time and ability, especially he lives right there. Right there and he could go drive it like pretty much whenever, and he does drive it often, even when other people aren't driving it. He's, he lives there. He just goes up there and he drives it. So Even if you're not driving the, at speed, Probably when you're not at speed, you can feel different bumps and things as well. And just like if you've been up the mountain a thousand times, you probably have an advantage. Yeah, there's definitely an advantage to, you know, it like the back of your hand. And there are no surprises other than the surprises like we talked about. That no one can prepare for. That nobody knows about. So So what happened the first year? So the first year we had an issue with the steering rack and the steering servo spiral lock came out. And it disengaged the servo from the steering rack on the top section of the mountain at 100 miles an hour. He had no steering. Like, you could spin the steering wheel and did nothing. Okay. And he got two feet in, all the brake he could muster. And So, like, wait, walk me through that because I'm not an expert on how your car is set up. That means that you have not a mechanical linkage on the steering? There is mechanical linkage on the steering, but it was a... Uh, racing steering rack and on a racing steering rack the servo is a removable part from the rack itself okay and what holds that servo on is a spiral lock and if that spiral lock comes out then the servo can move up the shaft and disengage from the rack itself okay and the column is actually attached to the servo not the rack okay so when the servo becomes disengaged from the rack you You lose steering. steering and Nobody had ever seen this before, and it only happened to us in the worst imaginable, well, not the second worst imaginable spot, because the turn before he lost it, there was a 3,000-foot drop. The turn we lost it was a wall. So he hit a wall with the car at the speed he hit the wall at, I think, was a 65 miles an hour. Which is which, which is, is not nothing. It's, it's, not it's, it's nothing. a lot of something. Like, if you hit a wall at 65 miles an hour in a lot of cars, it's going to be a banana, and you're going to be, like, care-flighting people away. Sure, yeah. Um, I was really proud of the car because the car was... It had the left front suspension completely ripped off. The front frame was kind of an accordion, but it absorbed enough energy that Tommy walked away and was drinking beers with us that night. So... I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a victory, right? Yeah, I, I looked at it as a huge win. And honestly, I like to be a bright side kind of guy. And I now can say I've actually crash tested my chassis designs. Sure. And I know what it does. 
and I've learned from it. And then I got together with my LMP buddies, and we made it better. And we learned, oh, well, if we change this and this and this, we could change the way the force goes through the chassis and sure. the wreck. Because our, the way that the chassis was built before, it did its job in that it protected Tommy. The car held its shape. Everything was good. But it KO'd the frame. I had to cut it off at the firewall and sure. build a whole new frame. The way we built it now, it's built to absorb energy and shed parts. Okay, and sure. save the main structure of the car. Sure. So we've actually got, like, breakaway sections where we can shear the suspension off of it. Transmit some of that energy away it. from... Yeah, and we learned that from the LMP guys because that's how those cars are built, and they wreck them all the time. Right. So we kind of took a little bit of what the LMP cars do, a little bit of what Pratt Miller and companies like that do, and incorporated it into our chassis design. So now we have a car that should be able to take a hit, and with spares, we can put it back together and get it back running. So... so uh, I imagine it probably took about 12 months to to prepare for round two of Pikes Peak. Was yeah. there, there was a break because of COVID? Is that right? No, there was, was no break. It was a little bit delayed. It went from a June race to an August race. So you had 14 months. And we barely made it because me being me and my buddy Tim at Motorsports Electronics and I get together a lot and just jam on ridiculous ideas for technology we decided, oh, we need to do a sequential turbo setup because that I be heard about perfect. that. And we did it, but it was so much more work than we anticipated it being. And while it seems like it really, if we could get it proper, would be amazing, the difficulty with the system is that it gives you a large weight penalty and a heat penalty, and it's very finicky. So... We didn't quite get everything exactly the way we wanted it, um, but we did get the car to year two, which was last year, the 2021 running, and the car ran really well. We were the fastest car on Friday qualifying, or it wasn't qualifying, it was Friday testing, where we would have qualified in the top five of the event overall if we had our time. Our qualifying time for the event was set with the car really not running right and not making boosts. We discovered that we had a wastegate issue that we fixed. And, you know, because we didn't really test the car, we just got it screwed together at the last minute right. and started running it at the mountain. There was a lot of little bugs that we kept running into. So on Friday before the race, we're like, oh, my gosh, we've got the speed. We can top five this. Well, we got bit by the exhaust gas temps. You know, we had super high EGTs, and it started melting things on the way up. And by the time Tommy got through the first sector, we were only on six cylinders. Oh, my goodness. And on six cylinders with the car, we also had a brake issue. With the brake issue and on six cylinders, we were able to get fourth in class and 12th overall. So we're like... So the weather didn't affect your race. It did have an effect on some racers? Yeah, some racers were a little bit later and the, the weather started coming in and it started raining on them and snowing which isn't ideal, obviously. Right. <laughs> but it's like freezing temperatures and it's sleeting. And you're on in, in the middle of summer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it happens in June because, you know, hey, it's Colorado. But right. uh, the weather didn't get us. I think just lack of preparation sure. is what got us. And that's kind of been our main focus for this year is we currently have a running car. Um, we're fighting a little bit of an issue where we were breaking lots of rocker stands. And we're it's like been a chronic issue since... Uh, the Pikes Peak race 
And we've been trying to figure out exactly what was causing it. And now we've just decided to go with a completely different cylinder head and do a lot of real, like, we're going to over-engineer this so we don't ever have to deal sure, with Sure, yeah, yeah. And that's actually why the car didn't make it to Super Lap Battle, because originally I wanted to race the car at Super Lap Battle. But the cylinder head thing was just, it needs to be right. And if we need to start over from scratch with new cylinder heads to make it to the mountain and have the car be what it needs to be, I'm not going to, like, rush that sure. to make it to Super Lap. So, well, I, I wish you uh, much luck in the 2022 Pikes Peak Hill Climb. But that's a natural segue to, well, you're here at Super Lap Battle. I'm what here. Are you, what are you doing? Well, we bought a Tesla Plaid just because I was really impressed when I drove my buddy Clay's Tesla Plaid. And it's a really neat car, and I wanted to see what we would be able to do with it. And I wanted to play with one. And the best way to learn about something is to get your hands on one and just start working on it and sure. driving it and see what happens. So uh, we brought the Tesla Plaid out to Superlap Battle, being the, the Camaro was down and out. And we've been having an absolute blast with it. It's, it's been really interesting experience. So there's not... Uh, I've been part of working grid life now for five or six years. The number of electric cars, of course, has increased because it is true that in the regular world, the number of those cars has increased. But um, the number of really fast electric cars that come to the grid is not that many. And so, I mean, it, it is probably true to say that the Tesla Plaid and, and certain versions of the Taycan are really, really high potential cars. What's been your experience so far? My experience so far with the Plaid was, like, right off the bat, I brought it bone stock down to Coda because, fortunately for us, we were actually kind of local to Coda. We're only about three and a half, four hours from here. Sure. Um, so we brought it down here, and it was not a good day when it was bone stock. Like, I couldn't make three corners with the stock brakes. Really? It would just murder the brakes. So step two was we put some brakes on the front and came back and drove it. And it was better, but we still didn't have track mode. And there were some really weird things that the active handling would do. You know, the car's got tons of nannies and electronics on it. And it would not let you throttle off of an apex. If the steering wheel wasn't straight, you didn't get the throttle. And on a road course, that was maddening. It just pissed me off so bad. I was like, oh, my God, why won't you go? So... Fortunately, before we got to Superlap Battle, Tesla's released the, the track mode for the car, which makes a massive, massive difference in the car's drivability. You could actually steer the car with the throttle and rotate it in corners if you want, and it'll do so much better things. The, the suspension is significantly stiffer in track mode than it is even in the you know the stiffest mode without the track mode sure which helps a lot because the car is just so big and heavy but that have you had it on the scales i have not but i've have got friends that have had them on scales they weigh about 4800 pounds that's that is heavy it's yeah. really heavy like really heavy and it's funny because a lot of people think oh the car's got a thousand plus horsepower it does do 174 that's limited on the back straight. And if I get a good run out of 11, the car's at 174 for two seconds. 
Wow. Like, it's on the limiter for two seconds on the back straight. What does the limiter feel like in an electric vehicle? It's funny because it just feels like it lays over. Like, it just kind of comes up on 174, and then it just you feel like you pull forward a little bit in your seat, and it just sits at 174. It's just not accelerating anymore. It just yeah. doesn't do anything else. It's Interesting. Like, it's at 174, and that's all you got. Interesting. Sorry. But you just feel the acceleration go away. I wonder if that limitation is a, a mechanical hardware limitation, like on the motor itself, or no, it's if software. That, it's a software limitation. Oh yeah, like if you were really, really good with figuring out the software, you could totally hack through that and get it to go. I think they said in the testing that those cars they've had them up to 200 miles an hour. So neat. Yeah, it's it definitely will not be doing that with the, the software that's in it now. Originally, when it was stock, it went 163. Okay. And then track mode gives you 174. So, so. Uh, that bump, is that just like a, a free download? Uh, how does that work? Do you have to buy yeah, it? Yeah, it, it actually just comes to the car. And the car says, hey, you have an update available. And Do you, you want track mode? Yeah, yeah obviously. Just, I've been waiting for it. Yeah, and you just, it updates itself. It's, it, the car is really like owning a computer with wheels on it. Sure. It's what it feels like. And it's a really neat car. And it's really fast for what it is like i'm super pleased with my lap time i was able to get a one or 225.8 out of a 4800 pound car on 200 treadwear street like tires. The, the context for that's really important right in in time attack world that may not be a barn burner time but i remember six seven years ago when optima came here um Danny, I think, ran a 222 shortly after the track had opened. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like a wicked time. Yeah, he beat everybody by like four, three seconds at a 222. And, and so like, that's fast. In a car that is essentially stock with some, some changes to brake calipers. Did, did the calipers and rotors change or just the calipers? Yeah, it's all new calipers and rotors. And then we put forge line wheels with... AO52 Yokohama's on okay. it. That's it. Other than that, the car is bone stock. Well, tell me how that system works. Like, I don't know how energy recovery works on those things. Like, you're able to change the brakes and you're not affecting that that's particular part of the system? Yeah, that's a really common question is a lot of people don't know, like, how the brakes on that car are related to the computer. But they're... It really has a very similar brake system on it that, like, the newer Hondas have. And they actually share, believe it or not, the same parts. It's an electronic brake booster and a normal dual master cylinder and normal hydraulic brakes. And underneath the dash, there's a little, like, solenoid that can activate the brake pedal. So if it's kind of driving itself or if it's parking sure. or holding at a stop sign... It just has a little actuator that actuates the brake pedal under the dash. So everything else is fair game. And it, we were worried that the ABS was going to be super, super advanced and freak out because we changed the brake bias a lot. I was not happy with the factory Purely brake Purely mechanically, bias. though, just by yeah. changing the size, the relative size of the rotor yeah. and the... Well, uh, the square area the of the caliper caliper is yeah, what yeah. I changed. And I, the car for whatever reason, I don't understand it, was really rear brake hot stock. And they clean all of it up with the ABS, which is why some of the people you may have heard or seen online, they were like disconnecting one of the wheel speed sensors to turn off all the traction control and ABS and everything. And almost every one of them spun the car out and wrecked it, 
Well, it's rear brake hot. So as soon as you hit the rear brakes, the back try to pass the front. Oh, sure. So knowing that, I'm like, well, I want to get this brake bias more what we typically see in like a race application. So I did correct that. And I've only had the car hit ice mode on me one time ever. And that was actually in turn one here this weekend. There's a pretty good bump going up the hill. A lot of people that run here know all about the bump in the brake zone in turn sure. one. Uh, and I hit that bump about the time I hit the brakes, and the car just got pissed. And it went into ice mode, and I pretty much went off track. If, and if there's going to be a place for that to happen, having the hill to help you slow down helps. Yeah, it wasn't bad. And it kind of took a little bit of my confidence away because, obviously, it's an experimental system. So I kind of took it a little bit more cautious for my next couple of hot laps. But this morning, I went out there, and I'm like, I think it was just the bump. I'm going to go back to pushing the brake zones harder, see what happens, and it performed really, really, really well. What's Given the hill at turn one, what is pushing the brake zone in a Tesla Plaid? I'm probably braking at the 175 from like 160-something miles an hour. That's pretty fast. Yeah, it's it really is. It's just so much weight on a 200 treadwear tire that you can just hear the tires because there's no engine sound. Yeah. You just hear the tires squawking. Uh, do you, would you time. say that that experience, like the tires are communicating to you better? Or do you miss the 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 uh, particular feedback that you got from the, the gasoline-powered cars? You know, it, the electric car, in my mind, doesn't have the same soul as a, as a gas-powered car. It doesn't have just sensory overload where you've got you could smell everything, and you could sure. feel vibrations, and you hear it, and you feel it, and there's just so much more going on. In the electric car, you do feel, smell, and hear things, but it's it's definitely far more like you could hear the tires so much better. Sure. And you get different smells because there's no exhaust. But right. the brake smell is much more intense. Well, right. And, like and that. that smell was always there. You just couldn't smell it over the exhaust. Yeah. Like in my car, you smell C16. Yeah. And Which is as a distinct smell. Yeah. You're smelling C16 burning and you're hearing the car going boom, boom, boom in the brake zone. You're not hearing the tires squawking for that last little bit of sure. grip. Where it's kind of interesting uh, I feel like driving the electric car and experiencing the electric car is going to make me stronger all the all around. Because, you think so? Yeah, because it really gives you the ability to just focus on one thing. Sure. And try to maximize that. Because when driving the electric car, I'm very much driving the tire. And my goal is I need to be wide open throttle and I need to hear the tires squawking under brakes or squawking turning one way or the other all the time, which is obviously what you're supposed to be doing. But because you have so much feedback from it and you can focus on it so well, I think it's really interesting. Yeah. And it was it was a cool experience. The, uh, the other crazy experience with that car was I've never driven a car that heavy, that angrily. <laughs> and... Oh, my gosh, is it at a disadvantage when you start sliding a car that has that much inertia? Sure. But, like, um, interesting about it is that much of the weight has really, really low position on the car. The center of gravity on the car is low. Oh, yeah. But you st I'm sure that you still appreciate how heavy it is. Yeah, it's, it's not like you get a bunch of body roll and everything because while it does have a really low CG, 
and the polar moment of it is pretty good. Like it changes directions well. The time that you really notice the mass is in a sliding situation. You came into a corner, you tried to get a little bit too much, it steps out and the tires gave up. And while in a normal car that might squawk for half a second, this is a second and a half. It takes the tires to get it Man. back, you know, because it's just so much inertia. It's like this heavy flywheel that even oh, though sure. it's low, it's you have to scrub off that much more yeah, energy. Yeah, for sure. Um, right. So kinetic energy is one half MV squared. So like a car that is double the weight of something else that you might drive has four times the energy. It's a big difference. It's a huge difference. And you can really feel that math equation when you step the car out. Yeah. Because it just stays stepped out. It's like you find yourself like literally frustrated. Like, will you please get well, grip again? I mean, it, I guess it gives you time to react, though. Oh, like it. it gives you eternity. It's like in the Camaro, when I have things happen like that, it's like a really quick flick of my hands and the car's back. This is like slow motion where I'm like looking at my watch going, is this freaking <laughs> thing going to get grip again? Before we started the show, I asked you about cross shopping because uh, like the, the Taycan Turbo S, I think might be at a different price point, but they're both like... It, ultra high-end performance electric cars. Mm -hmm. um, how did you cross-shop those, or did you? Um, and how did you decide that the Plaid was the, the, the platform that you wanted to start with? I just saw so much potential with the Plaid that I just wanted to get one and experiment with it because the thing is, right now, the fastest car in a straight line on the planet other than one unobtainium million-dollar electric car. Oh, like, yeah. Other than that, that's the fastest car money can buy in a straight line, period, which is really neat. And I wanted to play with it. Sure. And after driving it, I'm like, man, this thing really, it turns well. You know, now with the big brake kit, it stops well, and it's really fast. And we're talking, to put this in perspective, that Plaid just went on 200 Treadwear Street tires, a 225.8. I have a friend that runs at Coda all the time and has a, like, built-up, uh, Z06 Corvette, C6 Z06 with a built motor, and he's run it on Hoosiers and he's run like low 26s in it. Okay. And that's a guy that likes, he's a hobbyist, comes to the track. You know, he's not going to go set the world on fire at a time attack, but you're talking, he's trailering his car down to the track in a, a Corvette running low 26s, and this Tesla can drive home on 200 Treadwear street tires and ran faster. Well, uh, that's an interesting point. Something that I've noticed about being at this particular circuit, though, is that they don't make it easy to charge your electric car. No. You, you've been time attacking for two days. Your car's not currently on the charger. Um, how, how does session-to-session session strategy, like, what do you, you probably do a couple of laps before the tires get too hot. Do you like have to one. charge the car between, between sessions? So, I'll give you what we've learned, because that's better data. Okay. So, yesterday we were doing it wrong. So today we kind of know more about how to manage it. The car will have enough battery if we fully charge it at the supercharger, which is about 12 minutes from here. We can get it back, get it cooled down, get an outlet. Cooled down in this case means during the charging, the battery will warm up. Yeah, it gets and you hot. don't And you don't want that if you're trying to do a max power run. Yeah, it's actually a big problem. I went out yesterday. I, I went from the supercharger to grid, 
and I got partway around my hot lap, and the battery light was blinking red, and it cut power. Got it. So temperature is a big thing. But what's great is track mode actually manages that. And okay. I didn't realize it, but you're kind of supposed to put it in track mode like 30 to 45 minutes before you go run it. Okay. And it'll bring all the temps down to ideal temps sure. for the track. So uh, I, I haven't broken or I haven't studied the battery system in the car much. It, is there some kind of active cooling that's like when yes. you when you enable track mode? Is it is it fans it or has, liquid cooling? It or? has uh, fans, a radiator, a water pump. Okay, it's got the whole like regular car cooling system that goes through the motors and the batteries. Okay, and they can manage the cooling independently from them to just kind of try to focus on keeping the temps ideal in them. And it also does some interesting things with the battery where when it's just charging the battery under acceleration, it can actually like alter cells like it has sectors of the battery. Sure. And then it'll alter sectors to try and heat it up evenly. Okay, sure. So that it doesn't just smoke the battery. Sure. Yeah. Um, So that works really well. And if you if you're smart about it and you know that the track mode needs time ahead of time, it's way easier to manage. At, uh, at this track, I can get an outlap, one really, like, ring-its-neck hot lap, and a cool-down lap in about 30% of battery. Okay. So w- the strategy is the tires are done after that lap anyway. So that's what we're doing. Then we'll bring it back in. The break between sessions in the morning and the afternoon is not sufficient to leave here, go charge the battery, get back, cool the battery back down, and then make another run. So if we manage how much battery we use, you can do two sessions and then charge it over the lunch break. Sure, you have which more is much longer. Cool it yeah. down, and then go out and do two more sessions. Gotcha. But that's, that's pretty much where you're at with a Tesla Plaid on a track day. So uh, having, having driven gasoline cars at the track a bunch, especially higher power ones, you get kind of used to uh, how expensive consumables are, especially like gasoline or E85 or, or your race mm-hmm. fuel, whatever it is. Um, that vehicle running into the supercharger is kind of a nuisance. Uh, you pay a fee to use the supercharger, is that right? Yeah, for a while they used to let me use it for free, but yesterday, one time I went there, it was $4. Then the next time I went there, it was $10. So it, they kind it, of. It, it's funny though, because. That's probably one third to one quarter of what I would spend on gasoline for my Civic to go to the track. Well, if, if you think about it, it's like ten bucks for a full tank. I pay like ten bucks for a gallon of gas in the Camaro. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, you've kind of made your entire career though on on gasoline powered internal combustion engines. Um, you're you're tinkering with this, but like. What what amount of uh, your your tinkering can you translate to to business? So my ultimate goal is I want to try to create hybrids. So I think that doing a car kind of similar to my Camaro, only a hybrid, where it had maybe three or four hundred horsepower on the front axle and then eleven hundred on the rear, would be neat. Gas would be pretty insane for stuff like hill climb or even time attack or something because the amount of grip off corner we could get oh, would sure. be really neat. There is one car in North America that I know of that, that does that. and um, is this, uh, It's the same guy that runs Mountain Pass Performance, Sasha, in Canada. 
Okay. Um, he has a 350Z that's now a like a home built hybrid, and I've seen oh, a few yeah. videos of it running. It's it's a gnarly thing. Yeah, I think it could be really cool. And I mean, having old muscle cars and stuff like that that are you know literally like 1500 horsepower cars with with like modern technology is is cool yeah i think it would be really neat so that's kind of the intrigue for me and part of why i thought okay i'm going to step into the plaid just to learn electric try and gain an understanding of it and then apply that going forward into other builds and say okay well, what we've learned about electric systems, we need this amount of battery. This is what happens to them. You know, we're gaining a ton of knowledge about that. And you're not going to gain that knowledge reading about it. Sure. You need to get in the trenches and go out there and be willing to take a chance. And that's kind of what we're doing here with the Teslas. We're just taking a chance. And I'd like to run it all year, you know, maybe take it to some other time attack events, play sure. around with it see what it does you know the, the tricky part of it right now and uh, we actually talked about this a little bit is it's difficult to know where to class it you know it, that's absolutely true um grid life adam and i talk about it all the time because there's now a spectrum of performance available mm-hmm. uh in electric vehicles and so even within a certain model right like you say well at some point you're just doing it by gut you're saying how much potential is available in this trim level yeah. and uh, probably we're going to get it wrong sometimes and, and just have to make adjustments. Well, that was, it's really cool because the, exactly what you're saying is what we went through with, with the Plaid when we brought it out here. You know, we've got a bunch of friends like Ferris and Swenson and everybody that's making all the predictions of what the Plaid would run. And, you know, most people were wrong. They were just not paying attention to how detrimental the weight was going to yep. be. And I think it's good that we're out here running it, and we're giving it 110% because now even guys like you now know. Like, you don't have to wonder what a, a plaid prepared that way. And, and I don't think that I'm uh, – I'm, this is not saying this to flatter you, but, like, you're a pretty good driver. And, and so, like, when a car is driven by a pretty good driver at a track that you have frames of reference for speed, you can say, okay, well, like, that's a good baseline. Now we yes. can kind of work from that. And – Adam and I have both seen that almost, almost within one second, uh, lap times at Coda match lap times at Road America. Yeah, it's really we have interesting. It almost to the second across all kinds of different well, car classes. Was within less than a second. Yeah, at both tracks. And GLTC is within a second. It's it's crazy. But now we can kind of see that and be like, okay, well, the rules don't. Right now, like the rules don't match. They're written for gasoline-powered cars, right? So the rules don't like necessarily apply in the way that we want them to for certain electrics. And so that means probably we should just make some adjustments. Yeah, and I think it would be interesting to... At this point, there's not enough electrics for them to have their own class. because well, and, and, and I don't think that people want separate classes for electrics. What yeah. they want is to show that electric cars can be better. Yeah, and I think it would be fun to take the electric car out and run in a group that you can be competitive in and because you're going to have different advantages and disadvantages. Right. And it could be a lot of parity in the racing, and it could be interesting to see, okay, at this track, it's going to favor the electric car more, but say a track like Gingerman or somewhere that's really – it dependent on change of direction and everything, maybe the mass of the electric just yeah. kills it, but – the same two cars that are close, 
So I, I, you haven't done a ton of events in the Midwest that I'm aware of. Like what we saw in the Model 3s was uh, the Model 3s have been running in our street class, which is kind of our entry-level conventional time attack class. Um, and they can be really competitive at a track like Autobahn, which has uh, a, a lot of like not flowy corners, but like point to point, really uh, torque beneficial uh, cars. But at a track like Road America, that's so high speed, uh, especially coming up to start finish, like the hill and the high speed you have there, the cars just like. They struggle to compete. And Those so, cars die at like 90 miles an hour. Yeah. They just have nothing left, and that's where the plaid is is different. It it doesn't struggle with the speed there. Yeah. But what it uh, gains in speed, it loses in weight because it's like 800 pounds heavier. Right. So the, the braking three. ability is probably – I mean, it, it breaks – well but it's got a lot to slow down yeah it's just too much mass and so i'm kind of spitballing but like i can imagine a scenario where our street gt class which is where these cars would probably fit uh save the the requirement for msrp perhaps there's a provision for msrps for electrics which are measurably more expensive even though the performance might be equivalent so we'll see it's interesting stuff, and it's it's cool because it's groundbreaking and it's new and it's something that we've all got to deal with and experiment with and learn about. Yeah, and we won't really know where it's going to go until we try things, and some things are going to go great, and some things are going to be like, well, that was a mistake. And well, and I um, I tend to drive cheap cars currently, and so I have I have an old Civic that I take to the track, and I have a Fit that is just like a garbage car that I drive to and from work. Um, And then I have a 40 foot bus. So like the bus is the thing that is my fun thing for the moment. But I I thought about it. And if I'm not buying new cars in any like particular urgency, there's a really good chance that the next vehicle I will buy, if it's new, will be an electric option. Because at the rate at which car manufacturers are prioritizing electric, Let's say my time horizon to buy a car is five years, and I want a car that just is an everyday car. It could be an electric car, most likely. Yeah, well, and the way fuel prices are going, it becomes kind of more and more and more of an advantage. Yeah. And, like, if you wanted to be strategic, if you notice this, um, like, probably your, uh, your electricity provider has rates that differ on time of day. If you wanted to, you could just have a relay or something in place that would allow your vehicle to charge at the off-peak rate. So, yeah. so say it's 10 p.m. or something. From 10 a.m. to 4 or 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., you could just set the you system. You could program to, that in your car. Can like you? The Tesla will, you could tell it when to charge. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you just plug it in, and it, it will uh, minimize the amount of money you spend on electricity. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there's lots of cool stuff with it. I... I'm not on the team that says that they're way more green. I feel like that's kind of a, a big elephant in the room that people have with the, the electric cars is they all feel like they're more green. I don't really feel that way, but I think that they're really neat and the technology is really cool. But it's kind of interesting how you could kind of dive into a whole nother thing. Well, about actually, uh, I, I might challenge cars. you on that, not to fight with you, but I'm, I'm interested in your perspective because 
often people will say that there is environmental consequences to producing batteries. Uh, Mining minerals is uh, impactful to the environment. That is correct. Um, But so is drilling for oil. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so, like... I didn't say it was less green. I just said it's not more. Well, (laughs) yeah. Um, The... I think, though, there is probably a, a net positive benefit to the consumer because you spend less money on fuel. So really, I've got a few uh, friends that I've talked to that are electric car engineers. Sure. And it kind of all comes down to price per kilowatt hour. Sure. So if you get the efficiency of some of the newer technologies in gas burners... You can actually get the price per kilowatt hour lower than you can get in an electric car. So there is a very valid argument that with the technology that's coming online and available for super efficient gasoline engines, that they could eclipse the price per kilowatt hour available with electric cars. In part... Probably because those cars start at a lower initial purchase price as well, which should be factored in, right? Sure. Well, and then you get into things like how hazardous is the waste from the car? You know, like you have to go from, okay, we're, we're going from stuff in the dirt to stuff going back into the dirt. Right. That's the full footprint of that car and its effect on the environment, not just you taking it to work every day. And right. I think a lot of people kind of tend to lose sight of that. Sure. And lithium mining is horribly inefficient. Well, look at these it guys. Is, it is. You didn't get it two minutes. You didn't get it. You didn't do it. So Ferris Khartoumi just walked by, and he's had a really good weekend. But his goal was two minutes, and he ran a 204. He ran a 203.9. Oh, yeah, that's right, a 203.9. Um, which is a fantastic accomplishment. And I have also seen that it was probably a little bit scary to drive because the car seems to be um, resonating in a way that's really uh, concerning. I'm trying to look up what his results were. JT, position two, pure Oh, he didn't even go out. I don't know. We'll look at that later. So, um, but I feel like that if you look at it from soup to nuts both ways, I feel like it's really close. And I think my point is not that either is decidedly better. I feel like they're just largely different. Sure. And I think, I think as well the economics will continue to change in part because they'll be producing more electric vehicles and economies of scale will, will kind of take over. But also gasoline's expensive. I mean, I drive when I drive the bus, the bus gets seven and a half miles per gallon and uh, diesel is like four bucks a gallon. Um, If you're going from uh, Louisville to uh, Heartland in Topeka, Kansas, like that trip round trip is like 800 bucks. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, And I, I won't say that an electric vehicle could do that same thing because at the moment they just can't. So when GM says that all their vehicles are going to be electric by 2030, that's a load of crap because you cannot at the moment replace a Silverado 2500 heavy duty with an electric option. Well, you, you know, can't. I, I would say that you might be wrong because there's some technology out there right now that 
is you see glimmers of it, but it's what they're working on now, and it's like two times as efficient of batteries. So okay. the whole thing is going to be battery technology, right? And the whole limiting factor of it is going to be right energy. Now, how much li lithium do we even have? We have a lot. It's not, it's not the most precious metal. But they can't produce enough currently to support the demand currently. So when they need to build that many more electric vehicles, like the lithium production in the planet is going to have to go up exponentially that's, to support it. That's that, almost certainly true. Yeah, the, the infrastructure does not currently exist to support that much lithium production. Now, I will say that uh, people are innovative. Um, I learned uh, from Robert Thorne that uh, Robert works in a business that um, uh, responsibly and uh, legally disposes medical marijuana waste. So, like, after the plants have been extracted and, and whatever, uh, he works in a business that uh, handles, like, the federal responsibility of disposing of this waste. And it's like, this entire industry exists because the, the, basically the government mandates that it should, and it can be a lucrative business because there is a ton of waste. And this, this entirely new business idea just exists. And you can't just put it in a hole. <laughs> exactly right so like uh if there is a a requirement to dispose of lithium batteries in all devices in a particular way uh there will be somebody who figures out how to make a business out of that well the thing that kind of just shakes me is that we can't recycle them like the fact that they just get canned you yeah. know that's that just seems mega wasteful. well the thing that i think is unusual is you think about your, your personal life. Um, they're not uh, lithium batteries necessarily, but we've been throwing batteries away for a long time. Oh, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that maybe we need to spend a lot more time figuring out how to recycle this stuff. Sure. And turn it into something usable. Or even just like a base stock again, right? Like part of the industry that I work in, uh, in, the, in the chemical industry, is just like, taking material waste and converting it back into a base feedstock so that you can do something with it. That's sure. a really important business. Yeah, like if you could take lithium batteries and treat the lithium in some way that makes it activated again to where you don't need to continually throw that away and mine more and everything, that, that would be really cool. And I, yeah. I can't help but feel like there's got to be a way to make that work. I think we probably even know how to do it but at this point in time, it's, it's not cheaper being to done. get new to get yeah, new right. stuff and so that's than it like, is to recycle it. That's an interesting point because how many, how many Tesla Model 3s, given that they've been making them for a while, how many Tesla Model 3s and Model S's do you think are just sitting in junkyards? Probably a lot. You know, it's, I think most of them end up getting sold to people that stick them in Volkswagen Bugs and stuff. Oh, is that right? But, oh, yeah. There's tons of people that take uh, wrecked Teslas, and the drivetrains for wrecked Teslas is... A thing like there's companies that specialize in just that because people put Tesla drivetrains in everything and Tesla batteries and stuff. And the, the interesting thing is like the Tesla battery is r really not the premier technology right now. Yeah, it's there's like a it's a conventional at least for a time. It was like a conventional Panasonic battery cell pack. Right. I'm not sure if that's what it still is, but yeah, I, the new ones, I think, are, are better. I'm, I'm not a subject matter expert on that at all. But I do know, like, the little bits of things that I've been reading and looking at. There's some companies up in Michigan, like some startups, that 
have taken their battery packs and stuck them in Teslas and doubled the range. Yeah. With just better battery technology. Yeah. And there's a battery company in Texas as well, I believe, that's got some really groundbreaking battery technology. And that's where the future of electric lies. Like the motors are there. The motors yeah. can make plenty of power. Yep. It's just how do you get enough energy storage to I make it work? I think that um, for certain applications, electric semi-trucks make perfect sense. Because electric semi-trucks uh, need a lot of torque. That's true. But they have a lot of volume. You could store as many batteries as you need to get the range for the design requirement, right? So uh, if... You Just need, imagine how long it take to charge this thing. Sure, uh, you need an infrastructure <laughs> for that. This one's offline for a week to charge. Well, I mean, <laughs> may, maybe not. I probably just the amount of amp hours that or, that you need well, is just I guess you up. Could probably use it in individual packs and have like a a squid of chargers going to it and being right. charged up. Or, um, I mean, and like I don't know how often you drive big rig, but like going to a, a truck stop to fill up a gigantic vehicle is not a fast thing no it i mean granted charging all the batteries in, in an electric semi-truck would be a lot but i mean many of these routes the the distances drivers are allowed to drive are prescribed right so what you need are batteries that are sufficient to accommodate that many miles when you need it to charge in their brake yeah right like if if you can drive eight hours or or some number i'm not an expert on how many hours a trucker can drive but let's say you can drive eight that means that 16 hours if there is a charger available, that's 16 hours to charge. Um, so then I think you just need enough amps to accommodate. Mm. Seems, seems possible. Yeah, it seems possible. It limits the team driving aspect. Of, I suppose that's true. <laughs> of truckers. But it, it's a cool concept. It's cool technology. I mean, heck, it'd be neat if there was a way that you could get the things to, you know, make regen more effective. Oh, sure. And, you know, I've heard people have come up with some really crazy stuff where they'll, like, tow their car while they're driving it, like, let off the gas, and then somebody will tow them, and the regen will charge the thing, like, super fast. Interesting. So there's a lot of neat stuff that can happen and a lot of creativity. I'll ask you one more question about the Plaid, and then I'll let you go. What do you think of the yoke steering wheel? I am not a fan of the yoke steering wheel. <laughs> I would love to have a, a regular steering wheel on it. It's fine for most things, but if stuff hits the fan and the car is kind of out of shape and you want to make a, a regrip correction, you cannot. Like when you're in the plaid, your hands are where your hands are. You can't really regrip unless you grab like the straight top or the straight bottom. And it's a little bit awkward and unusual. So I would prefer a round wheel myself. So, uh, People, not everyone drives these cars on the track. If you have done any daily driving in that vehicle, um, how do you handle with a yoke steering wheel a situation like you're in a parking lot and you need to make a tight turn? You can't go end over end, which is traditional. I just grab the bottom of the steering wheel, which is flat, and just like flip it over with my hand. Okay. That's weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's <laughs> It's definitely weird. I'm not on team yoke steering wheel. So <laughs> I think that Tesla's got enough flack about it that they're actually coming out with a replacement that's not a yoke. And okay. they're going to make it kind of an option, I believe. I, uh, is it something that you could potentially buy on a car that already exists? Yeah. I okay. Think probably, I think it's supposed to be just like a bolt-on replacement. I see. Which would be not a sucky thing. If 
if they come out with it and it's a part that's in the catalog, I will get one. I actually have another yoke at the shop that I was going to modify and turn into a regular steering <laughs> wheel. So if they come out with one, it'll save me some work. But if they don't, I'm going to do the work and I'm going to have one. Well, I really, really appreciate talking with you. This was a lot of fun. Uh, congratulations on, on being an electric pioneer, I guess. And uh, I hope to see you in an event soon. All right. Thanks for talking to me, man. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at Gridlife to say hello. Hello.